Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Towards the end of the first essay of his Genealogy of Morals, Friedrich Nietzsche is going to set out this symbol, as he calls it, of Rome versus Judea. And when you read through this, he says, you know, we're coming to this by way of conclusion. These two opposing values, good and bad, good and evil, have been engaged in a fearful struggle on earth for thousands of years. And then he says, though the latter value, that is good versus evil, has certainly been on top for a long time. There are still places where the struggle is as yet undecided. And he's got an interesting suggestion here. He says, and this is going to be followed out in the later chapters, one might even say it's risen ever higher and thus become more profound and spiritual so that today there's no more decisive mark of a higher nature than of being divided in this sense in a genuine battleground of these two opposed values. And so, you know, there's a suggestion there that we don't want to just endorse the one or just endorse the other. In a way, it's a problem that's set before the people who are maybe even a higher, not synthesis, but a battleground, as he says, between them. And then he engages in some pretty clear typology, essentializing, that is to some degree, it's understandable, but also weakens the sort of claims that he's making in the work, and not just because he's being anti-Semitic in, in a typical Nietzschean way here, where he doesn't like other anti-Semites. And as Kaufman actually points out in a, a note here, he says, having said things that can easily be construed as grist to the mill of the German anti-Semites, Nietzsche goes out of his way, as usual, to express his admiration for the Jews and his, his disdain for the Germans. He's, a, he's expressing admiration for the Jews by calling them a first-rate priestly nation of resentment par excellence. So I don't don't really think that's calling them, uh, that's not extolling them or anything like that. And what we've got here is it could be criticized from that perspective. But I think we could actually put that aside. Enough people have made criticisms in that vein and say Nietzsche's not actually remaining true to his own insights here about the important roles played by these valuations and how this isn't quite so simple. And, and we'll, we're going to see this reflected in the second and third essays, which are dealing with, with a lot of other phenomena. So let's just follow along and see what Nietzsche says. And then we can say whether we think that it, it holds water or not. So there's this clash of valuations, good versus bad right? The noble versus the common, the original valuation. And then we have the transvaluated good versus evil, where the people who are defining themselves as good are doing so negatively by not being evil, like the strong or the beasts of prey, any of that sort of thing. They're, they're nice, they're kind. And you could say, okay, well, who is this representing? In a way, the common people, the people who are also filled with resentment, the priest, the priestly figure, although the priest is coming out of the aristocracy and does remain kind of a third figure, a third approach in things as well. And then Nietzsche reduces things to a binary. And it's kind of interesting. Instead of Athens versus Jerusalem, he does bring up Tertullian in here. It's going to be Rome versus Judea. And well, let's lay out what he says, and then we'll think about how plausible it is. So he says, hey, let's, let's go to it. The symbol of this struggle in 
inscribed in letters legible across all human history is Rome against Judea, Judea against Rome. There has hitherto been no greater event than this struggle, this question, this deadly contradiction. And what's the struggle? Well, it's Rome versus Judea, but also Judea versus Rome. Each of them has a view of the other. Here's how he portrays it. He says, Rome felt the Jew to be something like anti-nature itself. It's antipodal monstrosity, as it were. In Rome, the Jew stood convicted of hatred for the whole human race and rightly provided one as a link, the right to link the salvation and future of the human race with the unconditional dominance of aristocratic values, Roman values, right? So the Rome is standing in for, for something much more global than actual Rome, which is good because if we say this is the Roman view, no, it wasn't. This is the view, perhaps, of some Romans, but a lot of Romans didn't take any notice whatsoever of Judea as such, or Jewish culture. And at the same time, Jews, like so many other nationalities, spread throughout the Roman Empire and lived their own particular lives within it. They were viewed as kind of weird in that they didn't have idols of God and they seemed to be, you know, pretty troublesome, not just to the Romans, but the Greek successor states of the Macedonian Empire before them. But I think that the most Romans wouldn't have said that that was, Nietzsche was accurately representing their view, but that, that's fine. You know, there's something more going on here than being historically accurate. What about the Jewish view? He says, I'm not going to actually tell you what the Jewish view is. We can just recall the apocalypse of John, the most wanton of all literary outbursts that vengefulness has on its conscience. So he's talking about what we typically call the book of Revelations, the apocalypse or revelations of John of Potmos. And, you know, that's a weird, wacky book of the Bible. I mean, that is, you, you read the Gospels and then you look at Revelations and you're like, these are two entirely different kinds of literature and reflect very different ways of understanding whatever Christianity is supposed to be. And Nietzsche is using it as an example of Judaism, right? The Jewish view of the Romans. And he says, here's what, what I want to say. The Romans were the strong and noble. Nobody stronger and nobler has existed on earth or ever been dreamed of. That's debatable, right? Every remnant of them, every inscription gives delight. If only one divines what it was that was there at work. The Jews, on the contrary, were the priestly nation of Rizantamon par excellence, in whom there dwelt an unequal popular moral genius. One only has to compare similarly gifted nations, the Chinese or Germans, with the Jews to sense which is of the first and which of the fifth rank. So this is clearly caricatures on both sides. Nietzsche is using this to stand in for something else. Does he really believe the stuff that he's saying? here. That's a matter, I think, of debate. We probably do want to keep in mind and add to this the things that Nietzsche is saying about Judaism and Christianity in chapters 7 and 8 and 15 of this. He does point out that there are these Christians. He says, Dante made a blunder when he said, uh, placed above the gateway of hell, the inscription I too is created by eternal love. And then he talks about Thomas Aquinas mentioning this and Tertullian dwelling on this <laughs> at great length. Tertullian really kind of does represent a certain Christian type who's in some respects very angry and, and I think, you know, you could say shows what Nietzsche talks about as Rizantamon. I don't know that you can really tar Dante and, and Aquinas with this, but Tertullian and, and Aquinas do talk about the blessed in heaven getting to see the sufferings of the damned in hell and that being part of what's good about being in heaven. That does seem pretty Rizantamon filled. 
Is that to be attributed to Judaism? Well, only if you make the connection that Nietzsche is making in chapters seven and eight, where he says, okay, Judaism was really this religion of hatred against the powerful. Again, very debatable when we turn to actual Jewish texts in history. And then Christianity took that hatred and transformed it into love, which is a seduction to another kind of deeper hatred, another kind of resentment. If you buy all that, okay, well then, you know, you might go along with Nietzsche on this, this comparison. If you don't, if you're dubious about it, then you have to figure out what you want to do with this final set of discussions. Then he talks about who's won, who's won at present. And he, again, says, well, you know, the index of this is look at Rome right now. Who do we bow down to? The Pope. And the Pope is, you know, the representative of this Jewish point of view. He says, there can be no doubt. Who do we bow down to? Three Jews and one Jewess. Jesus of Nazareth, the fisherman Peter, the rug weaver Paul, and the mother of the aforementioned Jesus named Mary. Rome has been defeated beyond all doubt. And it's interesting that he needs to stress how humble Peter and Paul were, that they're part of the common people. So he's, he's clearly funneling the pre priestly, aristocratic, and the commoner into this thing that he's, he's amalgamating under Judea, right? He also talks about some historical developments. He tells us that the Renaissance was a time where Rome restored itself, Rome as being this focus of power, of worldliness, of domination. And so, you know, we could think of all the power plays that were going on there and some of what we call the bad popes, right? And then that falls apart. And then we have the Reformation and the Reformation, which he associates in particular with Germany and with England. Kind of funny because, you know, France was also torn apart by the Reformation, as were other places as well. But he says that's really a restoration of this Judea motif. And then we get the French Revolution, which he also views as the triumph of this Judea versus Rome dynamic. We should actually see what he, he says here. It triumphed over the class ideal and in this time in an even more profound and decisive sense the last political noblesse in Europe that of the French 17th and 18th century collapsed before the popular instincts of Rosantamont right now how noble was the French nobility well that's you know that's a good question to ask there and then he says that in opposition to this we have a restoration of Rome as well First, before that, we have, he says, in the midst of it, there occurred the most tremendous, most unexpected thing. The ideal of antiquity stepped incarnate in an unheard of splendor before the eyes and conscience of mankind. And once again, in opposition to the mendacious slogan of Rosantamon's supreme rights of the majority, in opposition to the will, to the lowering, the abasement, the leveling, and the decline and twilight of mankind, there sounded stronger, simpler, and more insistently than ever, the terrible and rapturous counter-slogan, supreme rights of the few, like a signpost to the other path, Napoleon appeared. The most isolated and late-born man there has ever been, and in him the problem of the noble ideal as such made flesh. We might ponder what kind of problem it is. Napoleon, this synthesis of the inhuman and superhuman, right? So he's, he's identifying Napoleon as being not just a representative of Rome again, but sort of like the superlative representative. And then I guess suppose you could say that it was Rosantamont that drove all the other powers of Europe, which were still aristocratic, to reign in Napoleon and sent to exile him twice. 
again, the story is a little bit too simplistic and a little bit implausible, but that's what Nietzsche is presenting at the end of this first chapter to say that he's bringing things to a conclusion about this fundamental clash between good versus bad and good versus evil. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.